we are going to be in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Genesis chapter 18 and 19. So you have a phone or a Bible. Go ahead and turn there. And as you are, as you're turning there, um, hold that place because we're going to read it all here pretty soon. So are any of you familiar with traffic? None? Okay. Some of us? Okay, I see one hand that's familiar with traffic. Oh, yes, all of us are familiar with traffic. And the reason we're familiar with traffic is because we live in Nashville, Tennessee, right? So are you familiar with the term rubbernecking? Yeah, it sounds funny, right? So the term rubbernecking is what happens when an accident has blocked up traffic. And have you ever driven on the side of the actual accident and then looked over on the other side of like 65 or 65 or 64, 24 or 40 and been like, why is the traffic so slow on that side when the accident's on this side? Well, that's because of rubbernecking. That's because somebody decided they were gonna go slow enough to see the devastation of the accident. And so they stop, which in, in turn causes someone else to stop and somebody else to stop until one point you just kind of wake up and realize, oh, I'm the person who is causing this line of traffic and it's called rubbernecking. And what I want us to see here actually as we kind of journey through chapter 18 and 19 is the essence of rubbernecking. How about we slow down and we observe? We observe what we all are going to know and feel when we read the text, which is devastation. What we all are going to see, which are big questions. So I want us to slow down a bit here. And if you, and if you think about it, I could preach to you a four or five hour sermon through this entire text. And I don't know how many of you actually want to sit here and listen to me for four or five hours through this. Okay, amen. We got an amen already. So <laughs> let's giddy up then. But what I want to do, yeah. <laughs> but what I want to do by slowing, this is really good for me, actually. This is really helpful. By slowing down, uh, I want the text to allow us to ask the right questions to see its purpose for the hearers and the readers and the ways for us to apply it. So as Israel would have listened to this story, they would have picked up on stories before. And in the same way, I want us to recall what has happened before. So where have we, where have we been? We've gone from the garden through the fall. We've interacted with Cain and Abel, with Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel, and the call of Abraham. And more recently, as John preached last week, the call of Abraham and the covenant signs. So if you haven't listened to that sermon, it's really important actually to coming into this text because they're not necessarily separated. It's just this is a focus in on what type of person is Abraham actually going to be? What type of people are they actually going to become? What type of covenant sign are they going to show to the world. And so as we go through this text, we see the scene and characters. We have Abraham, we have God, we have angels, we have Sarah, we have Lot's family, 
And the place is Canaan. Uh, but more specifically, we see the Oaks of Mamre, which we've heard before, if you've been with us in Genesis. And the hilltop overlooking the valley cities and specifically traveling into Sodom and Gomorrah. So why does this context then matter for us? Well, if you take this story as a whole, you'll see that 18 verses 1 through 15 and 19 verses 1 through 33 are held in apposition. So they're meant to be read side by side. They're not separate, but they're for us to look at and to see a mirror essentially of how Lot responds, how Abraham responds, and etc. So each scene has overlapping connectors, and I wish we had all the time in the world to get into those details. But as I read through this text and all of this text, I'm going to ask something of you, and that's that you participate. Uh, you participate in reading the text with me and seeing the overlapping connectors and the words and the phrases and the signs and the symbols. But also in the middle of this text is 18 verses 16 through 33. And what that I want to put before you is, is somewhat of the linchpin of the narrative. And the linchpin being Abraham with God. And so we will spend some time looking at that particular part of the text as well. So why does this story matter so much then? So as I've given you all this context, I want to suggest that when Israel heard this story being retold, it was after the Exodus. And you're going to, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, you will also hear echoes of that happening in this text as well. And what they needed is a reminder. They've been just taken out of oppression. They've been redeemed by God. And now they need to remember who God wanted them to be and who this God actually is. So it's important for us to answer these two specific questions then. Who is our God and whom has our God called us to be? So this is important for all of us to answer because since the fall, in the garden, humanity has struggled to get deep into their hearts the answers to both of these questions. Who is our God and who is my God called me to be? So in the garden, we would have received God and all of God, not just parts of God, not just aspects of God that fit our personal preferences or political views, but all of God. And we would receive him for he, who he is, and we would have walked with him. And in turn, we would have known exactly who we were called and created to be. So these two questions will guide us through some key highlights of this narrative. And I believe with God's help, and Lord, please help me, <laughs> that we will marvel at our God and be shaped more into who he is creating us to be. So with that brief introduction in mind, we're going to dive into the entire text of Genesis 18 and 19. So everybody shake off a little dust and let's strap in. Um, so Genesis 18, verse 1. And the, Lord, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of, of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there were men standing in front of him. 
And when he saw them, he ran from the tent to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And that after you pass on, since you have come to since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and said, to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds of milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I will return to you. And this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went down toward Sodom. But Abram went or still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham said, uh, answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. 
Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. And the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city and the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Before I er, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn the fellow being Lot, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck, they were struck with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were, <clears throat> who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city but he, he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your, and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. 
and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or step anywhere in, anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. And the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he took down, or he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and told all and toward all of the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in, in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with, the two, with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. He was afraid to live in Zoar. And the firstborn, and, and the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. We will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight, tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Let's pray really fast. Father, this is your word, um, and so we come to it not in fear, but in curiosity and awe of the one who speaks to us. You are the God who speaks, and we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. And God, we know that you know the, the state of our hearts and the questions that we have, and so would we not be afraid to bring them to you? Um, and would we not be afraid to approach you as our God? And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
Amen. So the first question, let's dive right in. Who is our God? So as we can, as we can see, going all the way back to 18 um, verses 1 through 15, we can see the story opens up with a journey. And these three travelers are on their way and they came across a tree where an older man, Abraham, welcomes them with the type of hospitality that would have been customary in ancient culture. So very quickly within the story, the narrator tells us who one of these travelers is. He tells us that God has come near. Abraham says, oh Lord, or even more specifically, specifically he could say, oh my Lord, as verse three says. So I wonder if you've ever considered just how near God is willing to come to you as you sit under a tree, as he travels through, through the day in the heat of the day, how present he really is to you, how he visits us when we least expect it. He is a God who wants to show favor as the text shows us, and he wants to come near, and he who shows up when we least expect it to dine with us. So God is present with Abraham here. He is near to him. And as the story continues, he asks a question. He asks Abraham for his wife. And the narrator says she was listening at the tent door, trying to get a sense of the conversation. So do you remember those times when you were growing up and you were little and your parents were maybe talking about something and you weren't allowed to be in there, but you knew it was some tantalizing news. And so you got yourself as close as possible to hear what they were saying. This is what Sarah is doing now. She's getting as close as she possibly can to eavesdrop on what this, these travelers, one being God, is saying to Abraham. And so, well, what we see here is God speaks and he brings news. He speaks of something he's already promised to Abraham and Sarah prior. And when God speaks, what he says is certain. And he says, I will surely return. She will have a son. And the force of the word will carries the certainty of the person who is speaking it. And the person who is speaking it is God himself. So God is a God who speaks, and when he speaks, it is certain, and what he has promised to them is predestined. And so the narrator actually inserts some detail here that I think some of us can relate to when it comes to when we hear God speak and what he has promised. But does that information that the narrator inserts, does it actually hinder God's words to Abraham and Sarah? Does it, hinder the, does it hinder him at all that Sarah is old and barren and that Abraham is old? No. God hears the laugh of Sarah and he actually confronts her unbelief with a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And what a question that is. Is anything too hard for the God who speaks the world into existence? Is anything too hard for the God who formed man from the dirt? Is anything too hard for the God who parts the seas? 
controls the winds? Is anything too hard for the God who brings the dead back to life? Is anything too hard for the God who knows your very heart, who knows your very mind, who knows your very struggle, no matter how big or how small it might be, and he still wants to breathe life into what you have determined is barren? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then the narrator shifts our attention to the men who are setting out and looking down toward Sodom. It says that Abraham went with them. And then the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? God had chosen Abraham. He had committed himself to him in the chapter prior. And what we witness here is a God who is relational who is walking with Abraham. He is inviting Abraham into his rationale. God does not need to tell Abraham he is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he does. He invites him in to his reasoning, into his thought process. He's closely relating to Abraham, proving that he is not some cold, distant deity but he is one who desires being known by his chosen people. He's not some cold and distant deity. He desires to be known by his chosen people. And as God expresses his plan to Abraham, we see a God who hears. Verse 20 says, the outcry, which to God's ears are the screams and torment of the oppressed. And this outcry that he hears is coming because of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the outcry has come to him, and now God is going down to deal with this outcry, with this oppression. And here we get a God that actually challenges our ideas of him. And some of us, <clears throat> some of us today only want a God of mercy. We only want a God of mercy. And you might tell me or you might tell people that your God does not deal harshly with the wickedness and the oppression of the world. He is merciful. But I would wager that you do not have a God if he is only a God of just mercy. And I ask you this question, what does your God of mercy do to the oppressed? to those who are hurting, to those who are being oppressed and beat down and abused by the wicked? What does your God of mercy do on behalf of them? Well, you see the God who is here does not just show mercy, but he brings justice to that which is wrong. And if our God is just a mercy God, He's not a God that's, that's willing to be served. He is a God that is merciful and a God who is just. The God of the Bible is the one who hears the cries of the oppressed and he brings justice. So as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah progresses, we see the picture of God that we all need, 
a God of righteousness, a God of justice, a God of mercy, a God of judgment. And the combination of mercy and justice is necessary for a perfect and loving God. Without justice, mercy could lead to unfairness and leniency. While without mercy, justice could lead to harshness and lack of compassion. We need both. And we need a God who is perfectly and fully both at all times. And so therefore, it is reasonable for us to believe that God must possess both of these qualities to be considered the ideal embodiment of goodness and the ideal embodiment of righteousness. So when we worship a God who is concerned for the fruitfulness of his image bearers and will not tolerate his image bearers twisting and doing wicked things with what the life that he has given them, we need a God that is both merciful and just to act. And so some of us need to know that God is a God of justice and he is a God who hears. Some of us have felt the weight of oppression. Some of us have felt the weight of abuse and we have cried out and we have wondered, does God hear? And this text is telling us that God hears the cries of the oppressed. And some of us have wondered, am I too wicked? Have I done too much wrong? Am I so far removed that God would not be merciful to me? Well, God is also a merciful God. He is both. And this text will show us exactly how his mercy plays out for those on both sides, those who have been oppressed and those who are wicked. We need a God who is both. And what you need to know is that these two things come together in God and that you can trust him. Even if you have experienced so much pain and hurt from being abused or oppressed, that if you can't even trust me sitting here telling you, at least trust the God who speaks here, who, who is a God of justice, who is a God of mercy. <clears throat> so in this story, this is who our God is. We see a God who shows favor and draws near, a God who speaks, and a God that what he speaks is certain. He is a God who brings life from what is barren, a God who is relational, and finally, a God who is merciful and just in all his ways. He is a God who is willing to intercede for the sake of righteousness and justice. This is the God who is there in this context, and he is the God who is here in our context. This is the God to whom we belong. And if this is the God to whom we belong, then this is the God who is calling us to be something. If this is the God in this text, he is calling us to be something. So and here is the second question in light of the first. Whom is God calling us to be. So this text has more than our fair share of points to which we could apply this very question. The story is 
a transformative story that's trying to shape us into the type of people to which God has desired for us to be. And there are so many varying applications that we could have. There are countless angles and approaches from looking at Abraham and the hospitality that he showed God to Sodom and the wickedness and the disaster and the ugliness and the depravity of a godless humanity and a godless people. There is Lot and his hospitality that we could compare to. There's just so much here. There's even the idea that God's grace could come to the most unredeemable place. We could even consider that. And I want to say that all of those are right things to consider. But as I was pouring over this text and thinking about it, all of these applications are so important. But what I really sense that God is calling us, Christ Church, here in this moment, in this place, to be is something that the text shows us that we might just kind of gloss over because we get lost in the questions of what's going on in Sodom or what do I do with the questions of barrenness. And what I want to present to us here is that this text is calling us to be a people of intercession. This text is calling us Christ Church now in 2023 as to be a people of intercession. And what we have in verses 16 through 33 in chapter 18 is a powerful invitation to be a people of powerful pleading, a people of powerful pleading before the God of righteousness and justice. So hear that a people of powerful pleading before the God of righteousness and justice. So consider with me then what is happening between Abraham and God. So the story tells us that God knows Abraham will become a great nation and that Abraham will be charged with teaching subsequent generations the way of the Lord. Again, the backdrop is this is the nation of Israel post-Exodus in the wilderness, hearing and just being redeemed by their God. And they're being told what type of people they are supposed to be. And so this great nation is supposed to be a nation of righteousness and justice. So once the two angels are sent on their way to see the oppression of Sodom, Abraham steps in front of God. Abraham essentially becomes the, defend, the defending attorney on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And what we have here is the first picture of petition. And what's so unique about this petition is that it's on behalf of the most wicked city in the land, a city full of oppression and power hungry people who abuse others and misuse their God-given lives who have given their desires over to the most imaginable, lustful things. And Abraham steps in front of God and pleads on behalf of this city, a godless place. And we see Abraham plead for them and he displays to us a priestly prayer, a priestly prayer. And you see, Abraham knew something about God here. 
He knew that this God was both merciful and just. And he isn't questioning God's justice here. I know when we read the text and, it, and, he sees, and he says that question, are you a God that is just? It's not that he's questioning whether God is actually just. He knows that God is just, but he's provoking in God what he already knows. He's provoking in God his mercy and his justice, his righteousness and his justice. And so Abraham's argument for sparing Sodom are founded on the concerns of justice, not merely for just the presence of his nephew Lot in the city, because that would be okay too. If Abraham would know that God was about to go destroy the place that his dear nephew was living in. Feel that for a second. He's interceding on behalf of somebody he really loves that is in a godless place. He promotes what already exists in God's heart and that God is a God of life and that the future of the world would not be determined by the wicked, but by the righteous. God will save the many because of the righteous one. Here's what we need to know. The sins of others take Lot at Sodom or even Adam with us. If the wicked and sin of the many mark an entire people, could it possibly be that the opposite could be true as well? Could it possibly be that, the, that a righteous one could mark an entire people if God is willing to say, I will destroy an entire city because of the wickedness of one or 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50? So could God do that? Could the righteous one mark the many? Could not God show so honor righteousness that he saves the whole. Abraham courageously asked God for this reality. So in short, God's will to save is actually so predominant over his will to punish. That's what's being provoked here. God's will to save is so predominant over his will to punish. But wait, this story isn't over. And if you read chapter 19 with me, which I know you all did because I read it all. <laughs> God does save some. He doesn't save all. Lot and his daughters are saved, but when Abraham looks down to see the valley, it's in smoke. God didn't save the many because of the righteous. Why? Well, you see, God did remember Abraham. And God did save Lot, but Abraham's intercession was lacking. And we know this to be true because Abraham's intercession couldn't save the city. He stood on that hill witnessing the judgment of God on the valley. And it had, it had to be true that Abraham's own record, his own record could not save the whole. So Abraham's own record could not save the whole. And we know this because Abraham got a clear affirmation from God to save. What did he do? 50, will you save? Yes. 45, will you save? Yes. 30, will you save? Yes. 
20, will you save? Yes. Oh God, I'm going to say it one more time. 10, will you save? Yes. Why'd he stop? Why'd he stop? Why'd he stop at 10? Why didn't he keep going? Why didn't he go all the way? It's that the text says that God stopped talking with him and they both went home. It's possible here, and I want to present this to you. It's possible here that Abraham realized that even when it came to Sodom, Lot was only relatively righteous. And that Abraham was only relatively righteous. That Lot's righteousness could not save the city. Abraham's righteousness could not save the city. But what we do know is there is one righteous who can pray the prayer before God that can save the city, that can save the wicked, that can save you, and that can save me. Our great intercessor, Jesus. Abraham risked his life to pray for Sodom, but Jesus gave his life to redeem the wicked, the oppressed, the sinful, the outcast. Abraham looked down from a hill to see the smoke from Sodom. Jesus hung from the tree on the hill to absorb the wrath of God instead of letting the wrath of God destroy even the most wicked of people. You see, what we see here is Abraham saying to God, God, will you save for the sake of one? And God would say to us and to him, yes, if it's the righteous one, the righteous one. You see, we are called to be a priestly people Israel was saved out of Exodus to be a nation of priests. First Peter tells the Christians that he's speaking to that you are a nation, a royal priesthood. We are called to be a priestly people of powerful pleading prayer for each other, for our city, for our world. And we need to grasp the great high priestliness to which Abraham points us. We need to grasp the high priest who lives to make intercession for us. We as a community can be priestly prayers, prayers that can change lives and cities, but it's not on our own strength and it's not by our own hands, and it's not by beating ourselves up because we don't pray enough or because we haven't done enough or because we don't think that we're good enough or because we can't say the right words. It's by grasping on to the high priest who is already making intercession for us before God. It's by grasping a hold of him together that we can be priestly prayers who are pleading and powerfully pleading for the sake of the lost, 
for the sake of the broken, for the sake of the hurting and the downcast in our city. So we need to grab a hold of Jesus, our high priest, and consider his powerful pleading prayer for us before God. He is the righteous one who can save. And I'll let the letter, or the writer of Hebrews close us out and I'll pray and we'll come to this table where the high priest has prepared for us a meal. So it says the former priests who were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Jesus, our high priest, we need you. We long for you. And for those, for those of us in here who might feel that we are too wicked, too far for your grace to, become, to come to us, would we see that you are here right now, beckoning us, calling us, interceding on our behalf to come, to come to you, to cling and hold fast to you. Would you make our church by the power of the spirit of the living God, a place of passionate, powerful, pleading prayer in the in the presence of the great high priest who is already praying on our behalf, you, Jesus, and do this by the power of your spirit for your glory. Amen.